Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 114 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday, March 13th. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. I am looking for a new football team. <laughs> well, if you're giving up on the Giants, I'm, my... I'm, I mean, I mean, what is left to not? There's what is left. Uh, uh, we're rebuilding with a 38-year-old quarterback and no cap space. Uh, you know, I think that we should take this moment to interest you in some other teams. Have you thought about the Cleveland Browns? I heard they got a great new receiver. Okay, how about how, how about getting behind the Texans? You're you're a Texan now. Okay, so the, the Houston the, Texans. I know you. I know I'm not going to sell you on the Cowboys. No, no, but can no. I interest you in the Texans? So the Texans. So so the Texans are are I think a leading competitor. Um, and the, you know we talked about my my quest for a new NBA team, and I think the Milwaukee Bucks might be emerging well, as the. How could the Spurs <laughs> not be your team? Mostly okay. just to piss you off. Let's let's save this till the end because yeah, okay. we we may Sorry, have already people. lost some of you. I know. <laughs> um, but and we actually do have a lot to talk about today. Yeah. So we'll Bobby, s- I actually sent you a whole run of. Show. Yeah, this is great. I actually can read off the list. We're going to start with some Manafort news, and we've got sort of uh, d- it's a theme of the show, a little sub theme, some dueling sovereign activity. Mm. We'll explain that in a minute. Um, before we get to the other sovereign and their activity, uh, <laughs> we'll talk about Congress. We've got the Yemen resolution coming up for a vote in the Senate. We've got uh, we've got the on- the ongoing national emergency. We've got related to that, uh, Mike Lee's Article One Act. Uh, we've got a bipartisan. Internet of Things uh, cybersecurity bill that's worth noting. Uh, we've got over in the courts. Quite a lot. Uh, what, what all do we have there? We've got uh, Doe, v, Doe 2 v. Shanahan. So, so we have we have the opinions. We, we talked about the D.C. Circuit lifting the injunction against the Mattis policy for transgender service in the military back in early January. We now have two interesting opinions by the judges on that panel respecting their immediate action to lift the injunction, which actually raises some of the themes we come back to on this podcast from time to time. Quite, quite a, there's a little bit of tension between these opinions. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Quite. It's, that'll be fun to unpack. Uh, we also have um, a really important Ninth Circuit decision from last week. I feel like we, this is like, you know, we said this last week. Um, there's yet another new important – I've talked before about the suspension clause and how it applies to undocumented – um, immigrants, right, undoc- uh, undocumented aliens, basically, who have just um, entered the United States, and the, to my mind, deeply troubling Third Circuit decision in Castro from 2016. Well, there's now a circuit split, because the Ninth Circuit has weighed in and held that there actually is a habeas requirement in such cases. Okay, that'll definitely be worth talking about. Um, and then you've got some uh, litigation of your uh, own. So then, yes, then we get to the then we get to the the, the navel gazing part of the program, um, <laughs> where I'm just going to briefly update folks on on what we're doing with Larrabee, the the challenge to retired service members being court martialed. That we haven't let that one go. Um, and to a, a bizarre new case we filed on Monday in the Court of Appeals of the Armed Forces, Bobby, a a textbook double jeopardy violation, but with some interesting questions about what the remedy is. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, well, you know, when we get to the segments where it's like, well, you've been doing this and that, I always feel like listeners are thinking like, what's Chesney doing all this time? I I can say, Bobby's doing actual academic research. I don't know about that. I was going to say, I've been thinking about like, do I need a new guitar? And if so, what should it be? But we can save that for frivolity. Because um, we, we have another branch to touch on, um, the executive branch. Oh, yeah. uh, we've got a National Security Division update, an interesting new material support case to note. Um, now, for Valdi, we've got a full plate. I mean, I, I, 
it's not it's not even frivolous. It's just sort of like not quite at the heart of our just podcast. Off, yeah, we change the name. It's not it's not frivolous. It's off topic for it's, sure. Right. It's so, in the zone of no expertise. We have the arrival of the latest U.S. News Law School rankings. Um, <laughs> speaking of no speaking expertise, of no expertise. Um, and and I think it's a it's a good opportunity not to talk at all about where we are in the in the relative totem no, but pole. But just talk about the overall enterprise. And just and and you know what. I actually do think that the U.S. news rankings have some value, but I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about what the value is. So, sure. we, okay. and and speaking of admissions considerations, ooh, admissions gate. You couldn't turn around yesterday without you know reading about admissions gate. There, coaches getting rolled up left and right. It was unbelievable. Including one, including one of ours. It was like the the final scene of uh, the Godfather, but with the like, FBI agents arresting coaches and such, and actresses and and parents. It was a really weird scene yesterday. The final scene of The Godfather, you mean where the Corleone family settles all family business? Yes. That scene? What? Okay, it's a bit of a stretch. It's not that big a stretch. <laughs> Dude. Yeah. That's all macabre. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. But, but so I, I do want to say, I mean, I, I don't know that we have a lot of useful things to say about that. I just want to highlight, so Karen and I, um, who usually see eye to eye on most legal stories, actually had radically different reactions to the story. Right. And, and I want to sort of talk about what might be back of those reactions right. and see if you know see right. if you find any see who's who's right Bobby I, I, Karen. Will, I will pass judgment on on the two of you exactly so. Karen wins <laughs> well yeah I mean we knew so right spoiler alert <laughs> wait Karen's I actually have to win. hear the merits of the argument no no, right, no you right. don't Karen's gonna win either way <laughs> um all right so uh Paul Manafort uh bad ah, day that D- doubly bad you might say because you had a bad day <laughs> nice <laughs> all right no, so by the way I don't know if you remember this. When the Mets were in the height of actually being relatively good, mm-hmm. um, about you know ten when they had to run two thousand two thousand seventeen, um, the 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 PA guys at Shea Stadium, because yeah. it actually was still Shea Stadium, um, when a relief pitcher or when a when a visiting team's pitcher got pulled in the middle of an inning because oh, they, they were getting shelled, so they play bad, bad day. day. Nice. <laughs> what I thought was like. Inspired. I do enjoy the fact. One little plug for baseball in yeah. general. There's better kind of trolling and and also just clever promotional music usage because you just do these short clips. You don't see quite the same comedy, and you can plan them a little better, right? Yeah. Whereas it's more spontaneous in basketball. Yeah, and football. exactly. All right. So Paul, Paul Manafort, Manafort. It's having a bad day. So he was sentenced by Judge Amy Berman Jackson in DDC this morning. This is obviously his second sentencing within a matter of weeks. This is on the DC indictment, um, and Judge Jackson basically tacked on another. Three and a half, four years to the four years he got from Judge Ellis. So this was consecutive, not concurrent? Right, consecutive, and, not concurrent, which yeah. is within her discretion. Absolutely. So I, I think it's something that uh, non-lawyers often are surprised to learn, that in the sentencing game, when there's um, multiple offenses, let alone multiple proceedings, as there was here, but even within a single proceeding, it's the judge's option, generally speaking, to decide are the are the different periods of conviction or of sentencing going to overlap such that whichever one's the longest one, that's actually the total sentence? Or do you stack them one end on the other so they add up to a much and, bigger I mean, sentence? This, if you haven't if you haven't spent any time looking at the federal criminal justice system, the amount of discretion that is committed to trial judges when it comes to sentences in criminal cases is you know I mean we could go on for years yeah. about this, but hey, it's, it's not what it used to be. Well, it's not what it used to be, but it is still remarkable. Indeed. Um, all right, and you know there's and that will lead to errors in both directions, of course. Errors or at least sentences that surprise outsiders, right? Sure. I, mean, I don't, you know. I, but well, let me ask you: Are yeah. you surprised by this particular sentence? I'm a little surprised 
Yes, I'm a little surprised that, to my mind, right, and, and this is not a reflection on what I think the sentence ought to be, but given other sentences that are out there in the world, given the state of current sentencing law, I think Manafort is actually getting off relatively lightly. Okay, I'm glad you said that because that's what I was going to say. Yeah. I was I was a little surprised it wasn't harsher. Yes. And, uh, I mean, listen, and, seven and, and, and a half and, years is not, is not a joke. No, it's not. And um, I think that it's actually on the whole good in that there was a lot of narrative. Like, I'm always a little uncomfortable when people are quick to go to the narrative of, well, this one judge was that political appointee, and therefore no, 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 that no, explains. No. It's nice, and, it's nice and, that they're similar. Right. And there was that kind of discussion in some quarters around right. Judge Ellis's sentence. So the fact that— uh, Ellis isn't political. He's just irascible. <laughs> this is an important distinction. Indeed. All right. Um, but but, but so, so I just want to say, I mean, so there's a lot of stuff on Twitter where there are lots of people who are sort of anti-Trumpers complaining about how light Manafort sentence is. And then, you know, there are people on the right, you know, saying, um, are basically, everyone's accusing everyone of bad faith. Right. It seems to me that there that that there is a much broader conversation about the ridiculous harshness as a general matter of the typical nonviolent federal criminal sentence. Um, that if you look at like sentencing ranges for nonviolent drug offenses, right, they are remarkably severe. And so I am not offended by Manafort's sentence in the abstract, right? What bothers me about Manafort's sentence is to look at what he did and to look at the place of privilege from which he did it and compare it to the sentences that people of nowhere near the same station with nowhere near the same nefariousness are getting for nonviolent, oftentimes first-time drug offenses. Well, I, I have no brief on whether this particular combination of sentences yeah. matches the magnitude of what he did, but I will say that it, it, the combination of the two judges uh, both coming in where they did, I think it's good for the republic in the sense that they, they both came in lighter than many expected or yep. wanted, and that, and that gives it a bipartisan sort of angle that takes away the argument that somehow the fix was in. Um, but his troubles are only just beginning because these are not the last sentences he might face, it turns out. There's a there's a new entrant into the game. By the way, can I say, before we, before we pivot to New York, um, I do want to say, Judge Amy Berman-Jackson said one thing that I really appreciated. She said, court is one of those places where facts still matter, right? Which I thought was, yeah. you know, I mean, I realize it's a dig, but it's, you know, it's, it, we, we talk all the time on this podcast about how there are numerous contexts in which courts are sort of the last refuge for at least some degree of principle, right? And for some degree of, like, thoughtfulness and nuance and careful legal analysis. Whereas this podcast, we're just the last refuge of what? Scoundrels? Desperation. Desperation and quality. Right. So, but, so like shortly after, so, so you're Paul Manafort, right? You're done. You just found out what your sentence is going to be. You're starting to think about like what your next steps are. And then the other shoe drops bum, and bum, it bum, drops bum, bum. from very, very now, high. How, I don't know that it was unexpected that there could be, would be, certainly wasn't unexpected that there could be a New York state, uh, charge or two. Um, are you surprised that, that this dropped at all? So just to be clear, right? So he was indicted by New York prosecutors on 16 charges related to mortgage fraud, conspiracy, and falsifying business records. Mm -hmm. So I was not I am not surprised at all that this was in the works. The timing is quite, how do I say, um, deliberate? Yeah, and I guess say, uh, and I, I'm, I'm not comfortable with the timing. Um, they have a lot of choice about when this drops and to, and to drop it, I think very purposely into this particular cycle is going to fuel the fire of those who want to cast this guy, right, Paul Manafort, like, as a victim. Right. Well, and indeed, so just to be clear, I think the reason why, from the New York prosecutor's perspective, you drop it today because now Manafort's thinking, how do I get a pardon? Right. And what? And and by dropping this indictment, you're basically signaling 
a pardon's not going to help you, buddy, right? That even if you are able to get a pardon, you still got to answer for these New York offenses for which President Trump can't pardon you. Um, Interesting so it's, question. It's, it's is that rationing up pressure. Is, is, if they're thinking he might cooperate, yeah. maybe that. So I want to find, like, what's the – I agree with you that there is that signaling effect. I'm trying to decide what I think about whether how legitimate it is for that to be the consideration that the New York authorities are thinking about. If they think it's actually going to possibly really lead to cooperation – Why then, not announce it sooner? Well, that's the other thing. It's the yeah. choice. So that explains why not – don't wait, right, because you might miss the window. But you'll, you'll still get the cooperation effect when you come in post-pardon – and post-pardon and, and make this uh, uh, charge, you know, he's still then like, oh, gosh, I don't get the benefit of the pardon after all. Now I better think about cooperating. But most importantly, they could have done this before the federal sentence came out. I would have done it last week, like before before Judge Ellis did this thing, right? Like I just would have – I would have just, you know, taken this off the yeah. table. Whatever I – I tell you this. Whatever it was, I wouldn't have done it this same day. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. All right. So um, interesting Manafort news. I suspect this is not the last we're going to hear of from him. Manafort night. I'm sure that's been done before. Ooh. Surely been done before. That episode title. Google knows. Write that down. All right. We'll check. <laughs> Manafort night. Ooh. Oh, boy. I see you need to spell it the, the video game way, not the, not the... Is there any other way? All right. Uh, two weeks? Yeah, I know. I know. Okay. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so, uh, let's, let's, speaking of uh, D.C., um, fascinating stuff going on, especially in the Senate in the next couple of days. Yeah, Congress has got a lot of interesting national security stuff on its plate. You want to talk about the Yemen resolution first? So this is the this is basically the resolution to effectively defund um, U.S. support for and U.S. involvement in the ongoing military shenanigans uh, that Saudi Arabia right is involved in and the UAE in Yemen. They're yeah, basically, this proxy conflict. It's important to distinguish uh, the U.S. involvement in support of the Saudi coalition activity against with the Houthis against the Houthis. Yeah. And the U.S. engagement vis-a-vis AQAP. In eastern Yemen. Exactly. Right. right. And there may be some territorial overmixing. Yeah, yeah. But from the U.S. perspective, we've got two very different, though not unrelated, things going on there. And this bill is an attempt to put an end to the part where we're supporting the Saudi-led coalition. It's not, it's by design not meant to uh, interfere with, in a direct way, mm-hmm. the counter-AQAP, uh, AUMF-type activities. Right. And, and what's, what's interesting to me about this bill is that of all the things, of all the places to, where Congress has shown some bipartisan consensus, Bobby, on pushing back against particular U.S. conduct, um, this is the one that's really resonated. I mean, this is the one where, among other things, Lindsey Graham has been willing to publicly speak out against the president, right? Where, um, you know, other Republican House and Senate members who have previously been pretty supportive of the president have been quite critical. So, you know, this is an interesting moment. Now, the administration has threatened a veto. Um, right there's a, a statement yeah. of administration policy. Oh, ah, I've got, I've got it right here. Uh huh. And, and of course, this is a repeat of of an earlier round. So in the last Congress, I think as recently as December, yeah. the same thing sort of played out. Well, so wait, but hold on a second. In the last Congress, it passed the Senate, and then it did not pass the House because of a series of procedural. I would say shenanigans. Others might just say moves that Speaker Ryan went through to prevent it from basically getting to right. Getting so to the, a vote. the smart money says, well, surely this time it's going to get through, and we probably will get to get to see a veto on this, and this will probably be veto number two if that's what happens. Because well, veto yes. number one, we'll talking about coming, in a moment. Coming. Um, so the statement of administration policy, this the the SAP process is where uh, through the Office of Management and Budget, the executive branch uh, takes formal and, and in theory. 
by by dint of the formality, a more credible way of issuing veto threats than just sort of passing the word through the uh, negotiators. And so it's published on the OMB website. And this one says, and here's kind of the highlights. Um, first and foremost, that the premise of the joint resolution, which is to say that it's a joint resolution furthering the, the war powers resolution framework, where the United States is engaged in hostilities, has introduced armed forces into hostilities, and Congress is now moving to force their removal. Uh, the executive branch says, well, that's wrong. This is not forces engaged in hostilities to begin with, uh, because the meaning of engaged in hostilities or introduced into hostilities under the War Powers Resolution, according to presidents or administrations of both parties in the executive branch over time, is actually much narrower than a layperson probably would think. And according to the, to the Trump administration, does not include things like the aerial refueling and other forms of support like intelligence and logistical support that is the nature of U.S. military involvement or engagement with the Saudis. Um, so I actually, I think that's right, that that what we're talking about the U.S. forces doing doesn't fall within the scope of, say, the Obama administration's uh, definition of introduction into hostilities that we saw debated quite extensively in the Libyan intervention several years ago. I'm not saying that it's, it's good for us to be involved or that there shouldn't be some other way of framing a resolution to force us to stop being involved. It didn't. The whole thing doesn't have to be framed as a war powers resolution measure. It could simply be a exercise of the power of the purse to say, stop spending any dollars doing this stuff. Doing whatever the heck you're doing. In fact, I would say it's a big mistake to frame it in war powers resolution terms. Especially because I think it also gets into, I mean, there's, you know, the, from a constitutional perspective, if the argument is that Congress is interfering with the president's constitutional authority as commander in chief, the irony is, is that the less this is directly interfering in the conduct of hostilities, the weaker the commander in chief clause objections presumably become. No, that, that's that's a good point. And so they're, they're definitely, of course, documents like this, they're going to throw all the arguments out yeah, there that they can. Um, but, but there was an early, I mean, so last February, I think uh, Bill Castle, who at the time was the acting, acting general counsel, yeah, yeah. right, at DOD, mm-hmm. yeah. um, had basically written a, a, a sort of an analysis of, of what I think what ended, ended up becoming the sort of the prior resolution in the Senate, um, where he said, you know, unless Congress is acting under the declare war clause, right, then, you know, Congress doesn't have that much power here. And I think that's a mistake, right? That Congress has the, the, the declare war clause is not Congress's only war power, right? Congress has the power to raise troops, right? Congress has the power to, you know, provide for a Navy. I mean, right, Congress has the power to fund the military. Well, I'll, I'll cite John Yu for the proposition that at the end of the day, if Congress really wants to have its way on a deployment question, Defund. it's power of the purse. The power of the purse is the ultimate war power. Yep. Dude, that's ultimate, a that's the, a great line. The isn't ultimate it? war power. The ultimate war, I think that's the title of the next Avengers movie after Endgame. The so power of the purse. Just, I mean, what they've done? In Avengers, fin- the power of the purse. Infinity War, Endgame, Avengers: colon, We've run out of ultimate titles. Uh, that would be good for a volatile topic later on. Like, where in, where else in the Avengers canon can you draw a good, uh, you know, space opera level drama? Ah, yes, the yeah. Avengers canon. That I, old chestnut. Yeah, I will, um, I will happily. Get all right, down so that path. so you mentioned you mentioned what could very well be veto number two. It is a quirk, right? A quirk of some might say the 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 nature of contemporary politics. The President Trump has not yet had to veto any legislation. Bobby, do you know the last president who got through his whole presidency without having to exercise a veto? Oh, my goodness. That is a fun question. So the short answer is no, I do not. That's right. Um, If I had to take a guess right now with no veto, eh? 
Oh. Now I should say George W. Bush got through his whole first term oh, without it, a veto. Was it FDR? It was <laughs> no FDR had a lot of vetoes. No, but I was thinking like towards the end, what, what, was he vetoing anything his last couple of terms? No, no, but I'm saying his whole presidency. I'm oh, saying, his whole presidency. So, so okay. George W. Bush went through his first term with no vetoes, but he had yeah. a couple in the second term. Okay, I was thinking just like Roosevelt's, you know, World War II years. Yeah. Um, no, I don't know who. So the last president who got through his whole presidency with no veto was James Garfield. Um, where it might have been helped by the fact that his whole he presidency didn't get through his whole presidency was six months long. Right, <laughs> that's, a, that's a cheat. That's a cheat. Poor James Garfield. Indeed. Yeah. Actually, that's a. So this is actually a really random moment to to plug a good book. Um, I wish I could find it on my shelf. There's a book called Destiny of the Republic, which is about Garfield. Oh, that's which excellent. I really enjoyed. So, um, so I would pair that with Gore Vidal in mm. uh, the is it the Gilded Age? So, uh, it, part of his, you know, sort of U.S. Yes. imperial history that the, every every volume of which is fascinating to read. Uh, but there's one that's the post. It's the one that comes after Lincoln. Lincoln mm-hmm. in the sequence. Yeah. Uh, so sorry, uh, Destiny of the I, just want, I want to give credit where credit's due. Yes, Candace Millard, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Millard or Millard, M-I-L-L-A-R-D, a 2011 book, Destiny of the Republic, a tale of madness, medicine, and the murder of a president. Nice. And so he lingered incapacitated for a long time, He should right? have survived. No, no, I mean, the, there's no question among modern, you know, I, I, historians, medical experts, etc., that the wound from Charles Guiteau's gunshot was not in the least bit fatal or life-threatening. What happened? He was killed by his doctors. <laughs> Who's the barber here? What you need is good bleeding, to quote I, Steve Martin. I mean, they kept they kept sticking like dirty instruments in to try to find the bullet. If they literally just left the bullet <laughs> inside him, he would have been fine. Well, but 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 all the all the efforts to get the bullet out actually ended up giving him serious bacterial infections, sepsis, all that good stuff. Good heavens! Yes. All right. Well, on that happy note, uh, should we <laughs> speak? Because we got on this topic because of vetoes. vetoes. Uh, yes. There's so a veto, veto number one. Coming. Why do we think of vetoes are coming? Because uh, I believe that sometime tomorrow the Senate is likely to vote to approve a termination resolution under the National Emergencies Act to terminate President Trump's border wall national emergency. I think it's going to be close. I mean, I think it's going to be like 52 to 47. But it'll be, it'll be to miles from suggesting that there's actually a veto-proof majority to override what will happen at the next stage, which is Trump will very quickly and and with a lot of relish, I think, will Do you veto think, this. So this is interesting. So Trump, you know, for someone who should be getting plenty of advice to the effect that there isn't a chance in you-know-what – that the Congress is going to override his veto. Trump has been expending a lot of capital the last couple days and has sent a bunch of tweets basically trying to shame Republican senators into not voting in favor of the termination resolution. But I don't think it's for the obvious, the direct reason. It's for the indirect reason. Every single time this gets talked about, every every moment that's part of the news cycle that brings this up to the top layer is another moment for him to be in the position he wants to be seen to be in, which is he's the guy, the one that can bring you the wall, et cetera, et cetera. And he keeps his favorite topic, the wall, and immigration, and Maybe. that sort of thing, although I'm not, although, nice and hot and, and anger-stoking. Although I feel like, I mean, I feel like in the process, you are highlighting the fact that you're going to be sort of, you're highlighting the division between you and some Republicans when you could just say, hey, if a couple of Republicans want to cross over, that's fine. I'm going to veto the thing anyway. Oh, right? but that, he, that, that, that's, yeah, like, so but, not his character. But, no, instead, but so what he's doing in the process is he's actually highlighting, like, yeah. it's going to be a bigger, I think it's going to be a bigger deal when he loses this vote because he's made such a big deal out of it. See, I don't think so. I think that he actually gets some mileage as well out of the divisions because it enables him to say, look, it's not just that the GOP in general is who's going to save you. It's me in particular. It's got to go back to him. It's got to be 
him individually in his narrative. Mm-hmm. And I think all this is in service of it. I think the veto is another moment of singularity for him where he's the one who's he's he's the guy maintaining the wall, all that stuff. So anyways, um, I, th- I think we agree, right, that it's going to pass the Senate. I think we agree that Trump is going to veto, although I'm not sure just how ceremonious the veto. Like, I, oh, ceremonious is definitely not the yes. word. Uh, uh, high profile, yes. yes. Ceremonious has a connotation that I don't think will be descriptive of what's going to happen. And, and you know, there will be a vote. I, I suspect the House will move first on a vote to override, but that it will fail. That will be it. And I don't think the Senate will move at all. Once the House vote fails. Okay, but speaking of, ne- never one to miss a good opportunity to look like they're doing something when they're not. Um, <laughs> I'm getting in trouble here. Um, so Senator Mike Lee, right, has introduced the Article 1 Act. I'm trying to remember what the acronym is. Oh, um, I wrote it's this. Actually, I'm sorry. It's I not. Got, yes. Here, are you ready for it? Yes. It's the, oh, I hate this acronym. <laughs> assuring, there's an A, assuring that robust, thorough and informed <laughs> congressional leadership is exercised over national emergencies. Um, I love the idea that someone sat at a whiteboard, you know, with no doubt like vertically spelling out Article 1, and they all sat there trying to figure out how to fill it in. It's like, so I understand naming things so that the public cares about it, right? Like the death tax, right? Or the USA Patriot yeah. Act. But, but I would just call it the Article 1 Act. Just call it yeah, that. Yeah, it doesn't just, have to be an doesn't acronym. Have to be an acronym. Anyway, uh, what's, what's the Dar Williams line? Buff, buff, uh, a name like that doesn't make a good act. What, what kind of a name is Students Against the Treacherous Use of Fur? Fur is already <laughs> dead, and besides, a name like that doesn't make a good acronym? <laughs> it is a consideration. I'm just saying, like, I mean, if, if Dar says it, it must be so. All right, All right so, so you're not a fan. I thought you'd be a fan of this. I am a huge fan of this, right? Oh, okay. So I'm a huge you. fan of the Article 1 Act. I am not a fan at all of hiding behind the Article 1 Act and then voting not to terminate the emergency, which a bunch of them are doing. Okay. So so in other words, the Article 1 Act, just to be clear, is, as we've talked about before, Sun, you know, providing procedures so that new national emergencies are going to automatically sunset and that the onus is going to be on Congress to affirmatively authorize and sustain a national emergency within 30 days of a presidential declaration of one. Well, let's talk about that before we get to, you know, yeah. questions of hypocrisy or otherwise. <laughs> um, what what do we make of this this particular sunset? Is 30, first of all, should there be a sunset? I think you yeah. and I agree that it's, it's perfectly reasonable when you're talking about a, a framework of powers and authorities that are by definition explicitly explicitly about emergency circumstances where times of the essence, you don't have time for Congress to consider giving powers. You need to just let the president act and have pre-delegated powers to draw upon. Uh, is 30 days the right term? My reaction is yes, right? And, and for two reasons. One, the bill expressly provides that if Congress is not in session or is unable to assemble, the clock starts running on the first day Congress is back in session. Right. So there's no there's no worry about getting caught out because of some artificially uh, rigid application right. of the 30-day rule. And if Congress can't pass a, a simple bill to approve a national emergency within 30 days, I can't really imagine the argument that it's really a national emergency. And if I captured this right when I skimmed the text. It looks like there's a lot of fast track authority to ensure that you don't accidentally somehow foolishly get tangled up in procedural imbroglios that prevent it from coming out. Right. So so sort of thwarting the ability of like the minority party, for example, um, to attach amendments to sort of bog it down in procedure. Right. Like the, you know, the bill will get through if Congress wants it to get through. So here's here's the thing to consider, and I think we've talked about this before. Were there to be such a bill in the books right now, yeah. uh, it wouldn't 
Because the Trump administration itself isn't well organized and doesn't execute things in, a, in an efficient way, it actually would matter because we'd have been 30 days already. It wouldn't have gotten renewed and the money wouldn't have been transferred. But a, a more competent administration would have had all that money lined up ready to go once the orders were given. Right. And, and if the driving concern here, if the thing that people have discovered they don't like is the ability to circumvent budgetary constraints, yeah, yeah, that's a problem. Um, then all you need to be is competent, which they aren't. But if, if you were competent, this wouldn't slow you down because you can move the money within the 30 days. and The money wouldn't somehow you know, be unwound. I agree. No, I agree with that. I, I will just say that if you are doing something that is such a blatant and at that point, I actually wonder if Congress would be impelled to move even faster. Right, that that you know, forget thirty days in you know thirty six hours, we're going to disapprove this thing. But that that'll get vetoed. I mean, the beauty of this is that it shifts. Yeah, I don't think. I don't and think. What? So the president sits on the sits on the veto for ten days, right, as he's constitutionally entitled to do, and then so the president would have you know uh, what to the, the sixteen days, right, to to spend all the money before Congress yeah. would override. And, the veto. And, and if again, you know, no one's relatively few people have been saying that the thing we've realized is problematic is the IEPA, uh, you know, foreign sanctions authority. Instead, what people are wound up about is discovering that you can circumvent the current Congress's budgetary decisions by reverting back to some of this DOD money that gets unleashed during an emergency. If that's the nature of the problem, this looks at first blush like a fix, but it's only a fix for in administrations that can't get their act together. Yep. So I'm not saying there's a bad idea. I think yeah. it's actually, this sounds like good government. Well, not only that. But, but it doesn't necessarily prevent this particular problem. Listen, I completely agree that this is not a perfect solution. But from this Congress, I will take it, right? And I also <laughs> like the precedent sets for war powers because I would love to have a serious conversation about automatically sunsetting future use of force resolutions as well, where I think you and I might have more different. Oh, we'll certainly have different views on that. But, but I think we can at least shake hands on this one. Well, except... Right, except for the hypocrisy that some people are about to use with regard to it. Right, so there are there are number there are a number of Republican senators who have been saying that they are going to vote against termination and then in in support of this bill. And I just you know if ever there was a closing the the, the barn door after the animals got out metaphor, there it is. Yeah. So I guess I think I'm of two minds about this. On one hand. I think it's it's pretty obvious that there's there's some positioning going on there where you try to position yourself as an elected official to be able to show that you are indeed guarding against uh, you know executive unilateral aggrandizement via the exec- the emergency powers framework. Uh, on the other hand, it is is true logically that one could think that this is a proper emergency. You could think that, that the border is indeed an emergency, <laughs> but you want to have this framework in place going forward because now you've been sensitized to how someone else might have the wrong idea going forward. And if anyone's going to think that way, it's going to be some of the Republican senators. Yeah, but come on. I mean, you have to suspend multiple levels of disbelief to get there. You, so yeah. the, a Republican senator who, 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 I mean, the impetus for this bill is the outcry over this particular national well, emergency. Well, for Mike Lee and for some others, but but we're hypothesizing uh, there are people who, who are not outraged by what's yeah. happening, but maybe agree that we, we should have a more uh, Article I uh, dominant emergency powers framework. So I don't think it's illogical. I agree that there's there's clearly some hypocrisy going so, on, at least so, some cases. So Article One, except when we're okay with the president abusing our power act. I don't think they'd view it as an abuse of power. I think if you if you accept yeah. the premise, I mean, you're you're moving from a position of not accepting the premise, but some of these people do accept the premise, and if you do, then you by definition don't so, view it as an so abuse. So I, I don't. I'm not sure some of those people accept the premise. I think some of those people understand that their base accepts the premise, and so are are 
making political calculations, not principled ones. No doubt there's some of that. Okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, interesting week in Congress. Oh, and you, do you oh, want yeah, to say yeah. a word about the IoT cyber Yeah, bill? just, you know, because we sit here all day. It's the easiest thing to do from the ivory towers to bash. Let's let's compliment. Um, I, wait, just, I would say, wait, if the article, wait, no, if no, the, we're, 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 I we're like the article yeah, one. Out. You're right, you're right. I just don't like that it's being, pa- I just don't like that, that some Republicans are clearly going to see that as cover. Well, but okay, we've we've done we've done that. Fair enough. Let's also talk about I things that Congress what exactly does. That was you know, fashion. Yes, yes, that's good. Uh, they do things still sometimes in a bipartisan fashion. It's sometimes, rare. sometimes it's stuff that everyone is ju- they're just taking care of the nation's business. I think we have a good example of that in the Internet of Things Cybersecurity Improvement Act or the IoT Cybersecurity Improvement Act 2019. Um, this has sponsorship on both sides of the aisle in both houses. Uh, Senators Warner, Gardner, Hassan, and Danes, Representatives Will Hurd, Robin Kelly um, have all introduced this bill, and basically this is you know uh, the latest in the long slog process of trying to level up uh, cybersecurity, in this case, in relation to the endless array of IoT devices that are proliferating rapidly across our society, and which much more often than not come with such lovely features such as hard-coded you know, default passwords of 1234 or password, no ability to patch or update, etc. It's a huge and now widely recognized problem. This, pill, this bill tries to get at it uh, in, a, in one subdomain, but a very important subdomain. It's focused on the IoT devices that end up uh, owned or operated by the U.S. government as such. It's not a nationwide all-of-society bill. It's a, it's a government procurement-type focus. Um, basically, what it requires or will require if it gets passed, which I assume it will, I hope it will, um, the National uh, Institute of Science and Technology uh, NIST is going to get a deadline of September 30th of this year to complete their study of how uh, IoT insecurity ought to be addressed. Then they'll get until the end of March next year to recommend rules uh, that will govern federally owned and used IoT devices. Then OMB is going to have half a year, so until September of next year, to implement uh, recommendations and guidelines that will uh, govern throughout the federal government uh, and consistent with whatever NIST comes up with. And then uh, there will be some other stuff. Uh, NIST is going to have to publish guidance on the process for handling uh, reports of vulnerabilities in these devices. There, there's some real complexities to that piece of it, and you have to design the institutional structures for reporting and acting upon those vulnerability reports uh, very carefully. So it, that all sounds like down in the weeds, but down in the weeds is where solutions are found on these types <laughs> of issues. So good job, folks. All right. Uh, what's next? Courts. Okay. What's happening in the courts? A lot. Yeah, what's your favorite one? What are we going to talk with first? I I don't think we're doing my favorite one first. I mean, my favorite one, you want to talk about Doe 2. Yeah, okay, so this is is Jane Doe 2 and others versus uh, Shanahan, the acting sec def, in his official capacity and others. Um, We, as Steve described earlier, what you've got here is a challenge, uh, one of many challenges to the the ban on transgender military service. what happened the other day was the release of two dueling concurring opinions from the D.C. Circuit's ruling that uh, – So on how January you, 4th, how, how do we sum up so, this okay, complex so, procedural? So, so let's back up a second, right? So, so on January 4th, the D.C. Circuit um, vacated a preliminary injunction that the D.C. Federal District Court had entered against the so-called Mattis policy, right? The Mattis policy is the far more nuanced, far more careful sort of – bureaucratically approved and vetted um, implementation of President Trump's not nearly as careful and not nearly as constitutional um, 
directive to revisit transgender service in the military. Would you say it's sort of the travel ban 3.0 to Trump's travel-related Except, except I would actually call it travel ban 5.0. Right, because it's it is, a far more— It's, it's like—I yeah. mean, it's— the, the you know I still have issues with the Mattis policy, but man, those are, you have to go way into the weeds to find where my issues are. Um, yeah. Anyway, so on January fourth, the D.C. Circuit vacated the injunction that the district court had entered, um, and these are basically subsequent opinions by two of the three judges on the panel with respect to why they voted that way back on January fourth. Right. So Wilkins and Williams have a dispute. Oh boy, and. Uh, it's, it's just very interesting to us because they talk a lot about the obligations of deference. And from a certain perspective, the whole dispute really is this question of just how much space is there for the court to apply what we would call heightened review or relatively non-deferential approaches to assessing this policy. And, and what this really what's really at stake here is, is it boils down to this. If you go with the rational basis approach, that means that what the court is going to be asking ultimately is whether there is a conceivable legitimate reason for what the policy is, and is there a non-arbitrary relationship between that reason and what they actually did? The government generally wins in that framework, as you might imagine. With Heidenberg, right, it's rare, it's rare yeah. for a court to say that the government acted for purely arbitrary and irrational reasons. Exactly, and and so and they'd probably win here if that's the case. Uh, with Heiden review, that's a, that's a spectrum of intensity. But if it goes all the way up to the the strictest forms of scrutiny, you're a looking only at the real reasons. So there's a probing inquiry to decide what the real reasons were, and they can't just be any reasons. They've got to be of, of magnitude. Um, and if it's strict scrutiny, it's got to be so-called compelling government interest. Um, and then you have to look for a very tight nexus between the policy actually implemented and that real and compelling interest. And so, as is often the case, there's a lot of fight over what's the right framing of the case from that perspective. Uh, Judge Williams is saying that, look, this is a military policy matter. And for a host of reasons, which and here comes the shameless self-promotion, as I like to do whenever this topic comes up, that I unpack in painful detail in my article, National Security Fact Deference. Virginia Law Review. Virginia Law Review. Um, he cites the t- what I describe in that article as the two classic arguments that are made claiming executive branch uh, deference to the executive branch. One, comparative institutional legitimacy, which Judge Williams says is obliged here as a matter of the separation of powers, that these are simply questions that don't belong to the courts, that are just they belong right or wrong to the executive branch. And then comparative institutional competence, the claim that the executive branch is is got special capacity to get the right answer. And, and the, the linchpin of it all is to say, look, this is a question of military policy. And that's, that's the core of where deference is obligated. Uh, Judge Wilkins is saying that that's true in general, but not everything that touches the military is in that category. And here, and this is critical, Judge Wilkins thinks there's a lot of questions that could be resolved potentially that matter to deciding how they're going to frame it um, that are going to require some further discovery. And therefore, it's premature to assume that we're going to have that sort of deference. Whereas Judge Williams wants to pretermit that discovery. Exactly. And indeed, uh, decide the case can't go forward and decide on the merits now. Right. And, and I guess it's just, I mean, this is, this is a great... And a very thoughtful, I think, um, uh, it, almost a teachable, Bobby, right, illustration yeah. of different understandings of the, pro- of the proper judicial role vis-a-vis these kinds of military arguments. And Judge Wilkins says there really is no one-size-fits-all approach, right, that these cases are complicated, that the, you know, the Supreme Court has identified contexts in which military policies, you know, have been subjected to slightly more scrutiny. I mean, Franciero versus Richardson, um, one of the early landmark equal protection sex discrimination cases was a military policy that was at issue. Um, I I don't mean to take sides because I think this is actually 
we'd have to do a really deep dive into the Mattis policy to, to really sort of exactly. flesh And we're it not out. doing that. We're, we're highlighting the way that they're dueling over deference, which matters a lot to us. Yep. Now, in my article, I argued that the right way to think about institutional competence, which does a lot of the work here, uh, when, you're, when you're making the claim the military and the executive branch just know better how to decide these matters, um, you should have reason to believe that those actually within the executive branch who actually do know better were in some real sense and fashion involved in making that decision as opposed to you know, other people who may have decided it on other grounds. Maybe that, maybe that expertise wasn't brought to bear. Um, that was a big theme in the, the, the travel ban litigation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something they're talking about here, and I want to highlight something Wilkins wrote. Um, on page 18 of the slip opinion, Wilkins has this long description of the various factors that go into the analysis of figuring out how to handle things. And one of the things Wilkins writes is uh, you should be asking whether Congress or the executive used considered professional judgment uh, in the course of deciding Professional things. judgment. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then the next paragraph goes on to say, you know, blah, 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 blah. This is especially true since the preliminary injunction relied heavily on the curious circumstances surrounding the president's tweet and subsequent memorandum, which reversed a policy supported by lengthy and careful study and replaced it with the policy lacking apparent support of any contradictory study. Uh, Wilkins, at least, is clearly focused on that factor that I had suggested was indeed one of the right things to focus on, which is comparative institu- institutional competence, maybe. Um, did expertise really get brought to bear here? Now, I think as you were, I think, hinting earlier, they're going to be in um, a better position to make the claim that indeed ex- executive branch expertise of the right kind was brought to bear here. Whether that's persuasive or not in the end, who knows? But compared to, say, uh, certainly the early stages of the travel ban, where it looked otherwise, and that actually, uh, I think, was a substantial part of why early on it looked like they might lose the travel ban case. Um I guess what I'm suggesting is to the extent that they can show that there was a real serious expertise-driven process, that is going to bolster the case for deference here. Um, Query whether when we turn back to litigation over the border wall national emergency and the military construction Or the steel tariffs. Or the steel tariffs. Will they be able to make the same kinds of showings? And these cases can come out differently logically because of this variation, if there is variation. And there's no – I mean, listen, there's no question that what happened in the context of the Mattis policy is the government – you know, perhaps pretextually, but nevertheless, went through a very deliberate policy, right? And and actually, you know, ran the traps and, and dotted the I's and crossed the T's. And I think, you know, that's probably why when all is said and done, the government's going to probably win these cases. Right. Well, and of course, the, the whole point of having, if you channel... If the rules of of, right. of deference and all the the legal stuff tends to incentivize the government to actually do run those traps, as you said, it actually minimizes the chances that it's just pretext because it actually does bring to bear yeah. this larger I guess, apparatus. I don't want to give up the ghost, right, on the notion that if the government is only doing all of these procedurally correct things um, to sort of if if but for animus on the part of the president, right, the government wouldn't have done these things. I I understand that that's a hard legal yeah. standard no, but to create. But there's a real. You're right. There's a real line there. With you could maybe get some mileage out of the but for element, but it's obviously very hard once you get to the stage where 
Well, maybe they would never have gone down this road, but they did go down it, and, and independent expertise yeah. actually yielded this yeah, analysis. Totally. Now, uh, Williams, to be fair, in the separate concurrence, basically says, like, you can't hive off the president, who is the commander-in-chief, and, and act like that's not part of the military's review and say somehow, I mean, it's almost like a unitary executive type yep. critique. Yep. And yet the logic of looking to where expertise actually lies, it's I think totally actually- them off. It, it does. And it's not doing violence to the unitary executive position because the, the claim that you- the claim that this should be decided on a unitary executive ground actually is a comparative uh, legitimacy claim, not a comparative competence claim. Totally. Yeah. But fascinating. I mean, for folks who teach or are writing or are just curious about this, it's a fascinating contrast. And, and really, I, I love when federal judges just, you know, really take seriously what they're fighting over. Yeah. And, and this is, I thought, I, I'm, you know, I don't think folks will be surprised. I'm more sympathetic to Judge Wilkins' view of this mountain than Judge Williams's view. But but we're better off for having both those opinions on Absolutely. the Absolutely. And they both, they both write really serious opinions. And I also think both of them know that they're writing against the shadow, yep. in the shadow of the wall, you might say. Yeah. Well, in the shadow of this president. Well, indeed. All right. Um, but we have more court stuff. So um, also last Thursday, I've lost. So, you know, both of the girls have been sick. So I've totally lost track of what mm. things happen on which days. I know that feeling. Uh, well. On whatever day I stayed home with Sydney, um, the while we were out for a walk, the Ninth Circuit handed down a major, major, major suspension clause ruling that really hasn't gotten a lot of attention because this news cycle is insane. Um, so short version, we've talked before. I think including episode 79. Ooh, um, it's a girl. It's a girl. Speaking of Sydney. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. um, so we've talked before about what I really think is the next generation of suspension clause debate. Um, right. So there's, you know, 2008, the Supreme Court for the first time has a major discussion of the suspension clause. It holds that that provision, which provides that the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when in cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety might require it. It holds that that provision confers a right to judicial review of detention, at least for non-citizens at Guantanamo. Mm-hmm. I think you and I agree that it's a fortiori that citizens... Um, are protected by the suspension clause. Oh, yeah, which, in, indeed, I would have thought that would have been clear before. And but the Supreme Court had never said so. Yeah. Um, perhaps perhaps in the category of things that shouldn't have to be, you shouldn't enough. have to have that site for that. And I I had thought, until August of 2016, I had thought that Boumediene was also a fortiori for anyone on U.S. soil, right? That if non-citizens with no connections to the U.S. who are picked up overseas and held at Guantanamo are covered by the suspension clause, surely it must be the case that non-citizens, you know, arrested or otherwise picked up in the United States are are also covered. Problem is that the Third Circuit, in an August 2016 decision called Castro versus Department of Homeland Security, had held that for undocumented immigrants who are picked up right after surreptitiously entering the United States, um, basically they resorted to something called the entry fiction. Right. That those non-citizens had not in fact entered the United States and therefore weren't really on U.S. soil, and so the suspension clause didn't apply. Is it Clarify this for me. Yeah. The entry fiction has it ever been clear? Like how many feet in, how many minutes in is so enough? The, the to entry take fiction you has never. That? So the, one of the weird things about the Third Circuit's case is the entry fiction has not been applied to people who enter the United States. The entry fiction is about those who are physically stopped at the border, right? The entry fiction is about whether, like, so just go back to like the 1950s. If you were actually, if you're sitting at Ellis Island and you have not yet been processed in across the border right. and into the United States. Are you in the United States versus right. the Constitution? Supreme Court says no, but only Bobby in the context of the Due Process Clause, right? That's the Meze, Mazai, mm-hmm. Meze, yeah. whatever. Okay. Case. Um, the Supreme Court had not only never held that about the suspension clause, but there are various cases that wouldn't make sense, but for the assumption that judicial review at least is available. 
And the Supreme Court had never extended the entry fiction to folks who are actually inside the country and not just physically at the border. Well, it seems to me it would be a little perverse if you're better off. Let's just take let's take a situation yeah. where there's two people yeah. Yeah, exactly identically situated. One goes and gets in line at the proper entry station and yep. the other one gets gets uh, somebody to get them illegally across the border. They both get stopped one foot in, yeah. one person in the, the formal holding area. The other one just gets caught right across the Rio Grande somewhere in Texas by an agent. Um, seems to me if if the entry fiction applies in the person who's playing by the rules, it certainly ought to apply to the person who's not playing by the rules. But then there's a question about we're not, deta- why- we're not detaining the person who's playing by the rules. The person who plays by the rules presents themselves at a port of entry. We say no, and we turn them around, right? So so that case doesn't arise. No, but before we before we add in any detention, let's just assume no. we're asking we're asking is there an entry fiction that right. that makes it seem as if the non citizen's still outside the U.S. If if there is one at the the proper place they're supposed to be, then there ought to be something analogous to that for the person who enters against the rules. Otherwise, uh, you know, it kind of disincentivizes. Uh, it incentivizes doing it the wrong way. But at the same time, there, there's got to be an outer limit to that because in my hypo that's trying to keep it simple, it's the moment they step foot on shore. And indeed, it's only one foot on shore. But what if it's seven months later and they're living in Dallas? Right. Um, at a certain point, the entry fiction starts to seem awfully fictional. But I think we, So first of all, it, it should be said, the entry fiction is a relic of a different time in the Supreme Court's immigration jurisprudence. You can look at a series of cases the Supreme Court decides in the 1990s, 2000, 2001, as actually in many ways being inconsistent with the entry fiction. Cases like Zedvitas like versus Davis. Mm-hmm. Um, the very last decision the court hands down before 9-11, as it turns yeah. out. Um, Without relitigating the entry fiction, I think there are two major sort of distinctions here that ought to have made Castro an easy case. Major distinction number one, this isn't an offensive invocation of the Constitution. This is a defensive invocation after the government has picked you up and placed you in custody, right? None of the 1950s cases were talking about what can the government, what what constitutional defenses might you have against government action. They were people trying to use the Constitution offensively to get a right to enter. Right. Okay. Um, Number two, those 1950s cases were decided before Boumediene. Um, and Boumedian was not, you know, the non-citizens weren't even at the border, right? They were in Afghanistan yeah. and Pakistan. And, and then brought to Cuba. And then brought to Cuba, um, or at least to sovereign U.S. territory, quasi-sovereign, anyway. Right. Um, and so I understand there are people who think Boumedian's wrongly decided. In a world in which Boumedian is the law, right. I do not understand the argument that those folks are entitled to judicial review, but non-citizens, whether stopped at the border, you know, in U.S. custody, whether stopped at the physical border or whether picked up seven miles in or not. Well, and I would add to that because I, I don't disagree. Look, if you're talking about the U.S. government exercising the power to deprive people of liberty within U.S. territory, um, the Fifth Amendment Due Process Clause applies to persons. Mm-hmm. It protects your liberty. doesn't mean you can't be detained. It just means the process must be followed, that the right process must be followed. And I've always understood the Fifth Amendment protection for physical liberty to be deeply intertwined with uh, the protection for the writ of habeas corpus because the one can't be effectively enforced without the other yeah. in the worst cases. Yeah. So I, I agree with you that this probably shouldn't be that hard a case. But the Third Circuit distinguishes Boumediene, right? And the Third Circuit says, well, Boumediene was, Boumediene was focused on the Supreme Court's extraterritoriality jurisprudence because it was considering the unique problem of people picked up outside the United States. But that cuts the other way, right? No fracking kidding. <laughs> All right. So that was the Third Circuit in August of 2016. Um, the Ninth Circuit last... Thursday, I think. might have been Friday. I don't think that really is going to matter. Sometime. Sometime last week. Um, in a case of a Sri Lankan gentleman whose name I'm just not going to be able to pronounce. It's like Thurasajiam. Okay. Thur- I, I just, I'm sorry. I really no, wish was, I knew how to pronounce it. That sounds about right. Um, 
basically create a circuit split. The Ninth Circuit had two major holdings. First, the suspension clause does protect anyone who is held by the United States on U.S. soil. Um, immigration status be damned, right? Um, and then second, and this is actually, I think, the more important holding, although it's the less headline-y holding, the judicial review that is available to undocumented immigrants who are picked up right after a crossing and who are subject to so-called expedited removal is inadequate to satisfy the suspension clause, right? That, that they're entitled to habeas because Congress's effort to sort of displace habeas in favor of this hyper-narrow, hyper-expedited review process doesn't provide them with the review that the Constitution requires. That's interesting. So this is entirely parallel then to Boumediene. Yes. First, first it applies. Second, the existing uh, review structure isn't strong enough to... And indeed, Judge, I think it's Judge McEwen, the opinion actually largely sort of, you know, par- yeah. parallel. So um, I say this, this is a huge decision in a couple of respects. Practically, um, this is going to make it a lot harder for the Trump administration to remove people applying for asylum who are picked up in Arizona and California, the Ninth Circuit, because so long as this is on the books, those folks are going to be entitled to habeas of collateral review via, well, not collateral, but habeas review of the government's usually summary denial of their asylum claims. Right. No, I assume that were this to stay on the books, and I'm this part of it, the second part of it, skeptical that it will ultimately, (laughs) but were it to stay on the books, then the courts would find themselves suddenly in the same position that the courts found themselves after Boumediene, which is having to decide, okay, what are the procedural safeguards and the rules of evidence and the burden of proof and all this stuff for what's going to have to be a real litigation of the merits. Although there is, I mean, there is a long history of habeas for asylum that just got displaced, you know, by recent jurisdiction yeah. So I don't think we, I don't think they'd be reinventing the wheel. I know, but they'd have to account for the fact that if this is all really sort of derivative in some sense of Boumediene. Well, the alternative, I mean, the alternative yeah. is, right, that the government could actually create a, a more robust process for ensuring that there aren't errors in the, yeah. you know. But, but I think we, we would both know that's not going to happen. Well, true. All right. Um, no, so it, I, I, I anticipate, obviously, there's oh, going to be further litigation. Yeah. So, and I think this court will be interested in this. And I think they'll probably, at least on this, I, I can well imagine them saying, look, we agree that uh, the the, the or we, uh, protections we, we apply. Assume, we assume without deciding. Yeah, we assume without deciding that the suspension clause does apply. But we find that what Congress has done here in light of Congress's special authority, blah, 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 blah is adequate. I think that's where it comes to rest. So, I mean, in Boumediene, right, it, what the, the, there were two dissents. Um, Justice Scalia dissented on whether the suspension clause applied at all at Guantanamo. Yeah. The dissent that the dissent on whether the review was inadequate was written by the Chief Justice. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, I... I it's time I, to dust off the Boumediene dissent. I mean, well, I have to say, you know, I... I when, when, when Justice Kavanaugh was nominated last July, I wrote a piece for the Washington Post in which I said, you know, three of the major ways in which he's going to be different from Justice Kennedy, um, one of them is judicial review in this context. That's exactly right. Um, Kennedy wrote about Guantanamo that it was within the constant jurisdiction of the United States and therefore, et cetera, et cetera. Never mind Johnson v. Eisentrager. Um, hey, now. I, I'm, just, I, I'm just saying. I don't um, think he had to mind Johnson versus Eisentrager. Well, that, indeed, that's how he saw it, too. <laughs> he, he at least distinguished it. Um, Brad Kavanaugh is almost certainly going to see that differently. Yes, and so I think it's going to be like so much else these days about my man. What you got there? The chief. Oh, Speaking of books, right, forthcoming book, book by my friend and CNN colleague, Joan Biskupic, The Chief, The Life and Turbulent Times of Chief Justice John Roberts. Hey, hey me that. While you're talking, I'm going to look in the index for Boumediene stuff. Ah, I don't know. I don't actually think, I don't know that Boumediene's in there at all. Oh, man. Okay. Well, you talk while I hunt. All right. Anyway, so that's the Thrasher GM. I mean, I, um, 
You're right. <laughs> um, so Judge McEwen and I, if I remember correctly, Judge Gould were the two active Ninth Circuit judges on the panel. Bobby, I think the government may just skip on Bonk in the Ninth Circuit because you know without without McEwen and Gould, I'm not sure you have a good shot at on Bonk. Yeah, I think it's right. Um, uh, and so I, I think we're going to get us. I, I think this is a case the SG will want to take to the Supreme Court. I think this is a case the White House will want the SG oh, to take yeah. to the Supreme Court. Well, and I think it, this this case really merits it. I mean, this is an important topic, whichever way it comes out. This is worthy of Supreme Court. Attention. I agree. I just wish that the Supreme court when I, when everyone was when everyone like me was yelling at them in tw- in late 2016 that Castro was a case that they should have taken right like you'd rather have had that vehicle I, I mean yes um right and, and or you'd rather or should I say you'd rather have had that Supreme Court lineup no 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 holy part even with this court right Be- and here's why because that case arose outside the baggage of this administration's clear focus on constraining access to asylum claims, mm-hmm. yeah. right? That that case arose just in the context of the Obama administration's, you know, separately debatable and disputable immigration policies. And I just feel like that would have been a cleaner a cleaner yeah. lens through which to resolve this question. Well, they got split now. And oh, by the way, um, I just want to say, I was right. I was telling everybody for three years that, like, the next huge suspension clause question was going to be about undocumented immigrants. Did anyone deny it? No one cared. No one cared. And now everyone's going to care. All right. They're going to care now. All right. Speaking of me being right. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Speaking of Larrabee, what? Huh? Wait. Speak, speaking of cert denials, um, there are so many bad segues here. So let me, just, let me go quickly through the last couple things I want to talk about. So um, we talked before about our Larrabee case about challenging whether the military has the constitutional authority to court-martial retired service members. As folks know, the Supreme Court denied cert um, in Larrabee in February in our direct appeal from the Court of Appeals to the Armed Forces. So we, Bobby, last week refiled Larrabee as a collateral attack on his military conviction, um, which, you know, for which there's a long sort of legacy of doing in the civilian courts. Indeed, the Solicitor General in opposing certiorari suggested that we do that. Um, and we filed it in the D.C. District Court, and we drew Judge Richard Leon. Ah, just Leon, right, right. Um, so someone asked me if I thought that was a good thing or a bad thing. Um, I, I just I, did we? I, I know we talked about this a little bit, right? I think I my prediction was exclamation marks. So I, I have a I, I mean Judge Leon, Judge Leon does not suffer fools, um, and I think I think you know I'm 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 excited about that in our case. That should actually be helpful. I think that'll be a lot of fun. He's he's a good judge, and and this is going to be very interesting. Um, and and I might I, I might end up arguing a motion for summary judgment. There's something I five years ago, if you told me I'd be doing, I, I would be like Rule Fifty Six. Is it six? Yeah, I think it's six. Four. <laughs> All right. Anyway, um, and then speaking of of new things, um, ooh, President Trump just announced that the U.S. will halt flights of seven thirty seven maxes. So that's interesting. That's a random. Sorry, I'm just oh, I'm just going off of what, yeah. what came to, what just came in over the ticker. <laughs> Squirrel. We need that sound. Talk about being last. All okay, right, that's not your only litigation. Right. So we also on Monday. Um, so I, I want to describe this double jeopardy case to you. I, I know you. I, I I'm curious for your initial reaction. Yeah. Okay. When I okay. describe what happened in this case. So our client is an army colonel, um, whose wife suspected that he was cheating on her. And who took various steps to try to find out, including installing various spy software on his computer, and in the process discovered, eh, not only was he maybe not so much with the whole fidelity thing, but maybe also he was up to his eyeballs in child pornography. Oh, okay. yeah, All right. not good. No, All right, no. so you've got both federal crimes and uh, UCMJ crimes. Um, 
Well, so interestingly enough, right, I mean, so let's be clear, the, the military is not, the, the Supreme Court has a case this term about separate sovereigns. And so let me back up a second. Double jeopardy clause prohibits three things. It prohibits successive prosecutions um, for the same offense after conviction, right. successive prosecution for the same offense after acquittal, and multiple punishments for the same offense, right? Those are the okay. three core prohibitions of the double jeopardy clause. Um, but it doesn't apply, it, there's something called the separate sovereigns doctrine sure. that says the United States and states are separate sovereigns for right. the double jeopardy clause. So if New York wants to prosecute Paul Manafort, hypothetically, right, <laughs> um, they're not precluded from doing so just because the feds have prosecuted him for the same things. Right. Okay. Um, the Supreme Court has a case, this term called gamble, where they might actually be in the process of revisiting the separate sovereigns doctrine, um, right, that Justice Ginsburg and Thomas have been calling for the court to revisit it. But it's irrelevant here because the military is not a separate sovereign. Right. No, I think it's obvious, right? This is the U.S. government either right. way. It's the U.S. government either way. Right, so here's what happened. So our client was charged, Bobby, tried, and convicted in federal district court for the Middle District of Pennsylvania. Convicted but not sentenced because usually in federal criminal, civilian criminal cases, there's some period of time, right, between yeah. the conviction so and sentence. Yeah, so doing the pre-sentence report and all that All that stuff. stuff. While that's all going on, he is tried. He is tried. He is charged in the court-martial system with overlapping offenses okay. of possession and distribution of child pornography. Um, he is um, he he files a motion to dismiss on double jeopardy grounds. Um, the motion's rejected because the trial judge doesn't really understand double jeopardy. Okay. Um, if that had happened in a civilian court, he would be entitled to immediately appeal that ruling mm -hmm. as a collateral order because he has a right not to be tried a second time. Right. There's no such appeal in the military justice system. Aha. Uh -huh. so, so he was he, forced to undergo a period of double jeopardy. Well, he pled guilty, right? So he said, so so reserving my right. Ah, so he's right? like, I know how to end this quickly. Plead guilty, reserve my right to appeal this issue and because I know I'm going to win. And then appeal. Well, so I know I'm going to win. Right. And then what happened? He didn't win. Um, wah, 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 so here's wah. what happened. So he is he is convicted on his, based on his plea agreement, and he's sent he's sentenced in the court martial. Then they, they go back. They still haven't they still haven't sentenced him in the federal. Then civilian. they go back to the federal court, right? Then they go back to the district court for sentencing, and the district court says, "Uh oh, I can't sentence him now on the possession they charge." They beat me to the punch because that would be a that would be a multiple punishment double jeopardy violation. So the district court not only refuses to sentence him on the the possession count, the district court actually dismisses the possession count. No, that seems wrong. It seems like my, my immediate reaction yeah. to this is no, that the district court already had the conviction. So the conviction in the UCMJ was void ab initio. You need to let that percolate up until they do the right thing and say so. Right, the district court could have then you sentence. The district court the, could have stayed the sentencing. Exactly, and then you sentence. That's fine, the, but yeah. the but but the district instead of but the district court didn't want to commit a second double jeopardy violation, right? By punishing a second time for the same offense. Agreed that that was yes. right not to do, but dismissal seems like the wrong solution. I understand. I, I think the, so. I don't think it matters because he got the same sentence in the district court either way. Like once he can't be sentenced on the first count, he gets the same sentence on the second count, which he was sentenced on. He gets 142 months. Is that it? That's a count that didn't have the double jeopardy Correct. problem? Correct. And it's going to be concurrent or consecutive to go back to our... Um, ooh, that's it, would ha it would have to be concurrent for this logic to work, right? Well, no. So wait, I haven't gotten... Well, to, no, I guess wait, you, you Bobby, get that whole term. I haven't gotten to the problem yet. Oh, we haven't gotten to the problem yet. No. <laughs> My bad. All right. So, so our client goes back and he perfects his appeal to the Army Court of Criminal Appeals. And the Army Court of Criminal Appeals says, yes, the military trial was a violation of your double jeopardy rights. But no, we are not going to dismiss it. Why? Because when the district court dismissed your conviction for possession, you received the full remedy 
for the violation of double jeopardy. And if we were to now dismiss your military conviction, that would be giving you a, quote, unjustified windfall. Wouldn't it? That's Maybe I'm hearing this wrong. That sounds right. I mean, the main thing is this person is clearly guilty of, in the eyes of both court systems, yeah. some child pornography offense, yeah. clearly should receive one sentence Wait, so, for that. So listen, the district court sentence of 142 months isn't going anywhere. But that's based on a different charge, right? That's True. Not- but okay. But the problem is, is that the double jeopardy clause bars successive trials, right? I mean, so the problem is that his his military trial was not voidable. It was void. Yeah, I agree. That's So I agree with that. My reaction was it was void ab initio. So therefore, there was no valid conviction and sentence. And therefore, there's no unjustified right. windfall. So, I mean, here, let me just, yeah, here's yeah. what, so one of the concurrent judges in the Army Court of Appeals says, as long as the results of one trial, as long as the results of one trial go away, the Constitution is not offended. Right, sort that of is no not, harm, no foul. Sort that is of. not how the double jeopardy clause works. By that logic, the government could prosecute someone multiple times. And pick and just, the best. And just pick the best one. Well, that's the best argument, right? And I'm sure that's your lead argument. Yes. That you can't, ha- you can't set up cherry picking. No. Um, it does seem like what happened here basically was a screw up by the military courts the sentence that should have stuck, yeah. the one trial that was legitimate. Yeah, was the district court. The, right. But no, the trial judge in the military should have absolutely granted the motion to dismiss. But also note the complication that arises from the lack of an immediate appeal. Right, That, that oh, yeah. error would yeah, have yeah. been fixable before the double jeopardy violation would have occurred. I'm quite surprised to learn that you can't have an immediate appeal of that issue. You can't. The, the military justice, there, there's almost no, no interlocutory appeals. for interlocutory appeals in the military justice system. Know, maybe this is one that should. Hey! <laughs> There's right. a- so anyway, so on Monday we filed a petition for review in the Court of Appeals to the Armed Forces to see, you know, this is a discretionary petition, right? So the Court of Appeals doesn't have to take this yeah, case. Yeah. I feel like they ought to. Well, it's certainly interesting, and I think you have a... I'm not sure I fully understand the ins and outs of it because of the weird sequence. It seems to me a situation where both courts kind of successfully, successively screwed up. And the question is, how do you avoid a situ- How do you undo it and unwind it in a way that doesn't give a windfall to a convicted, twice convicted right. child and pornographer? And all I want to say is, if you agree with our view that he should never have been subject to the military trial at all, right? Right. Wiping that off the books doesn't change the sentence for the first trial, right? Which is 142 months. That's not going anywhere. Right. So I don't know what the windfall is. Well, the windfall is that there might have been a consecutive sentence. The other the other charge that did right. go away that shouldn't have gone right. away might have been an additional. But I'm not sure it's just the court's fault. I mean, the the Army Court of Criminal Appeals was quite critical in its opinion of the prosecutors for you know basically trying to sort of divvy up like the offenses based on when they occurred. And it's like so at that point, is it, you know, is it really you know if if because the prosecutors and the and the court screwed up, is it really you know are we really worried about giving yeah. a windfall to the defendant? Did they actually? Is there some evidence to think that what happened here was you've Sorry. got like a year's worth of this illicit material, and they said all right, the the civilian prosecutors will. Focus on the first six months. And there was, then, there and was some the, of that. Yeah, that that sounds pretty game. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, so yeah. you know, before we're talking about when, like, talk about. I mean, the the windfall here would be to the government if the army court is correct, because then the government can just say, "All right, let's just wait to see which trial goes better." Right. And once we figure out which trial we like more, we'll just hang our hat on that one and totally agree to dismiss the other one. The key thing for people having trouble tracking the separate sovereigns element here is separate prosecution offices, separate courts. Sure, but same, same sovereign. sovereign. Yeah, totally. All right. Anyway, so. All right. Interesting stuff. All right. Uh, one last note before we yes. get to the frivolity. Uh, yes, National Security for... Division update. Charges announced an arrest of Kim and Vo. That's V-O. 
of Georgia, arrested in Georgia, uh, a whole bunch of interesting sort of online handles she used, including uh, Fang, Miss Bones, Sage Pie, and Kitty Lee. Uh, she's charged, uh, at least the complaint alleges, that she was conspiring to provide material support to the Islamic State. Uh, in particular, that she was involved in what is sometimes called the United Cyber Caliphate, the UCC, which is a bunch of people who are using online means and methods to disseminate IS propaganda, and including most famously uh, trying to spread information about the homes and addresses and names of U.S. service members and putting them on so-called kill list. Uh, So that's, she's a a 20-year-old, which is really something. She's 20 now, so I guess the, the offense conduct was about a year and a half ago to a year ago. So at 18, 19 years old, this Georgia resident's involved in these things. It's, uh, it's quite ugly and quite sad. Um, she's looking to get 20 years for that. And that's my National Security Division update. Why don't we turn now to, uh, well, let's invite listeners if they don't want to hear the frivolity. <laughs> Thanks for being there. And you know what, Steve? Before we let them go, we should say, for those who came out to the meetup last Friday, we had a South by Southwest informal, not official South by Southwest, no badge required, meetup. There was a Lawfare National Security Law podcast all together because Ben Wittes was in town. We all got together over at uh, Haymaker, uh, Easter Campus. The, the weather cooperated? It was fantastic. And all kinds of interesting folks showed up. And we are so grateful to all of y'all who did. The conversations were really fun. We handed out some swag, which was great, um, some podcast t-shirts. The only downside was that I had to leave early because C Supra sick kids. Sick kids. Yeah, well you were you were appreciated while you were there. So everybody <laughs> who was there, thank you so much. And I did we'll say I mean, this is this is something I, I, I assume you and Heather have experienced is you know the phenomenon <laughs> of having multiple sick children at the same time. Well, no, I mean going back to the theme of consecutive versus concurrent, ah, yes. stacked sentences <laughs> has an application to the realm of sick kids. So we have been enjoying the stacked sentence approach of sick kids this week with two of our Actually, all three in sequence with a little bit of overlap. All three daughters sick at various times. Oh, good. Yeah. So that's parenting, baby. Um, so <laughs> speaking of, where do we, where do we jump in sentences. first? So, yeah. so this, I want to say two quick things about the U.S. news rankings, and then I want to pivot to the, the college admission scandal. Yeah. So the U.S. news rankings are out. Um, every year they come out, I sort of, you know, I, we're lucky enough to be at a school that, you know, is, is I think not radically outside of the cohort in the U.S. news rankings that I think is realistic for what it, what it ought to be. But... Um, I think it is worth stressing to those who are listening to our podcast who are thinking about going to law school that it is my experience that, that, that applicants use the U.S. news rankings as all but like dispositive when it comes to their preferences, right? That, that those who don't have clear geographic or other sort of familial constraints. All things mean equal, it always breaks the tie. Right. That, you know, a school being ranked, you know, 20-something as opposed to 30-something or 50-something as opposed to 60-something. And I just want to say, like, be savvy consumers, right? That the U.S. News rankings are ranking a fair number of things, some of which are, I think, important when it comes to legal education. But they're also ranking in a way that a lot of schools know how to game. So here's my just my one quick anecdote. When I was an American, U.S. News... A lot of weight is placed on incoming LSAT and GPA, right? That the uh-huh. sort of the incoming average and twenty-five, seventy-five ranges for the LSAT and the and the GPA. Um, schools figure that out, and so a number of schools dramatically reduce the size of their entering class um, and basically cut off the bottom of their entering class. And to make up for the shortfall in revenue, 
that follows from cutting off the bottom of their, of their endurance class. They radically increase their 2L and 3L classes. Through transfers. Through transfers. Well, and adding LLMs. Did, and you, add, have a lot, did you have a lot so of LLMs? LLMs are, I mean, related but distinct, right, are LLMs. Yeah. I, I'm just talking about sort of, you know, JD, yeah, sure. JD, okay. JD yeah. students at the moment. Um, and this is especially a problem in, in, in cities with multiple law schools where the economic costs of transferring are actually relatively low. So DC is oh, a good yeah. example, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, you know, transferring if you're moving halfway across the country is a big decision. Yeah, it's a natural constraint. Right. Transferring if you're moving across the city is not as big a decision. So there was one year I was at American where out of a class of 425 students, we lost 104 to outbound transfers. Um, wow. And of the 104, the top three sort of outbound transfer destinations were Georgetown, GW, and Columbia. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's just, you know, I, I don't, some of my colleagues at American tended to blame the students who were leaving and like wouldn't write letters for them. And I thought no, that was, that's not cool. That was petty. Yeah. Um, I blame, I blame U.S. News, right? Because we went to Bob Morse, who runs the rankings, and we said, Bob, this is happening, right? I even, um, Greg Maggs, before he was a judge on CAF, right? He was the acting dean at GW, and we were on a panel together. And, you know, Greg said, yeah, we do this. I mean, like the schools admit they do this. U.S. News knows they do it. It would stop the moment U.S. News says we're adding a column for, you know, 2L GPA and LSAT, right? Or for overall student body GPA and LSAT. That would stop in a second. They don't do it. Right? They know schools are manipulating the data, and they take no steps to, to account for that. And it actually ends up punishing some schools at the expense of others for no other reason than geographic proximity. Well, and of course, in the first instance, the first place it has an effect that might be different from what the university's interest might otherwise be yeah. is deciding not to take a certain number of students whose scores fall below a certain 100%. figure. 100%. Um, now, look, there's, it's, a, it's a well-plowed field that there's, there's pernicious... Uh, incentives created by the structure. No doubt there's also some good ones. I, I have no doubt that there's been some good yeah. from, from Listen, some I of I don't think the rankings are valueless, right? That is right. to say, like, I think, I think the things that, the data U.S. News collects is valuable data. I would just encourage anyone who's looking at the rankings, don't just focus at the number in the far left-hand column, which is the rank. Right. Focus on the actual data well, and what it, it tells you about the school. So, right. So I wanted to say a few words about that. So that why do people focus so much? It, part of it's availability. Mm -hmm. it, it's available. And as long as there's a common interest and in a, in a common tendency to look to that place, it becomes self-fulfilling. It becomes a question of how you feel when you're telling your friends, your family, et cetera, where you're going and, and so forth. But a large part of it also is an assumption that it's a, it's a good proxy for what your prospects will be. And that actually is you know, perhaps somewhat true insofar as everyone does indeed start to credit the rankings as being the be-all, end-all. But at the end of the day, it, it really is only a proxy. And what you really want to know is, what kind of job prospects will I get? If I want to be in this certain location, do the types of legal employers that I'm interested in, in that city or that market, do they come to this particular campus? And if so, how far down in the class do they go? Yep. And what is my, if it looks good on that dimension, how much debt do I have to take on to be there? Does the debt load on average mm -hmm. coming out of that school, does it intersect in a way where it looks like, yep, if I go there, I have a decent chance of an affordable shot at the job I want. Right. That's what you ought to be trying to figure out. The rankings are a proxy for that, but they definitely don't tell you that. Well, and the left, and, and the, the Uber number isn't going to tell you that, right? The Uber number is not going to tell you that. What's going to tell you that is some of the stuff in the rankings plus your own research. And guys, just to be clear, I mean, the one of the positive developments of the otherwise deeply troubling, you know, downturn in the legal market was the increasing move to push law schools to be transparent 
about things like debt load, right? About about the very metrics Bobby's talking about. And yep. so don't you know, don't be lazy. Like don't just go to US News. You know, if you're interested in a law school, go look at the data they're publishing on their own website. Yeah, um, which, and, it, and there's know, increasingly there's not as much data perhaps as as the market should provide. But there's more than there used to be. There's a lot more than there used yep. to. Well, there used to be none, right? right? You couldn't trust necessarily what you saw. Now right. there's a lot of law school transparency and others. So right. Really so, so when you this. and I were applying to law schools, right? U.S. News. Part of why U.S. News had cachet and power is because it was so hard to find other information. Yeah, yeah. That's not true anymore. And yeah. so just, you know, it's not an irrelevant data point, but it ought not to be the only data point. That's right. All right. right. Uh, Speaking yes. of admissions. Who <laughs> <laughs> yeah. boy. Ooh, that was crazy. Um, what, okay, so you, you told me earlier that you and Karen had uh, sharply different reactions on at least one dimension so, to the so admissions Karen and I, page. Karen and I, oh, sorry, yes. I got to say, Operation Varsity Blues, I, I don't, don't want, want your life. life. <laughs> Oh, I like it did when you, you talk did, sexes. Did you say James Vanderbeek's uh, uh, tweet yesterday? No. Oh my God! Oh, you missed really? this. Okay, oh, no. this was the Tell tweet. I, I thought the tweet that I mean, James yes, Vanderbeek. There was some real competition on Twitter yesterday for which tweet won Twitter, but I really think that that James Vanderbeek won because here's what he said. He said. If only there was a succinct turn of phrase these kids could have used to inform their parents that they were not desirous of their life path. Oh my God, that is really brilliant. <laughs> That's a competitor for Man of Fortnite. Uh, I don't want your life. I don't want your life. Um, anyway, so here's, I assume everyone is basically familiar with the rough outlines of the story. I don't, I'm not going to rehash it. Yeah. Karen and I, Karen's not listening, so I can say all these things and not worry about being wrong. Um, <laughs> Karen and I, invariably have very similar reactions to big legal stories. Okay. Um, you know, with a few, there are a few places where our politics are like marginally different. So we have slightly different. Okay. Like, um, but we tend to have similar reactions to like big legal headlines. So what? we had very different reactions to the story. So Karen's reaction was like, you know, oh my God, this is insane. I literally can't put down the internet. I want to read every, like, she read all 222 pages of the probable cause affidavit. Yeah. Like, you know, okay, she I, is I'm with Karen so far. Okay. Where do you break ranks? So my reaction is, like, what about this is surprising? Like, really? I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm not offended, right? But, you know, newsflash, right? Rich, pa- ri- you know, parents of, rich parents of children um, don't think the laws apply to them and will use their money shamelessly to try to maximize their children's opportunities. If, if you told me that if the story had been that rich, you know, hyper-rich people are making huge donations to universities to influence uh, maybe direct quid pro quo, um, no, that's that's an old story, um, but but. Bags of cash through this elaborate bribery scheme, especially involving the coaches <laughs> designating people as athlete recruitment targets to exempt them from the ordinary rules. <laughs> that, to me, is something I did not know. I mean, if you'd asked, hey, do you think that ever goes on? I'd say, I mean, I'm, sh- I'm sure everything goes on somewhere in this country of a you know a third of a billion people or whatever. But I would never believe there was such a big elaborate operation really? as was unfolded here that was that scale of sophistication and, and almost institutionalization. Maybe I'm, more, maybe I'm more cynical. I think you're just more cynical. I was really surprised that we're talking about bags of cash being handed, yeah. that actual outright bribery, as opposed to donations and, and connectivity but so, and so this is the influence. point. So, I, so, see, I see a difference there. So, so one of my reactions is, why don't, you know, this, I mean, when, when Donald Trump, so, you know, Donald Trump Jr. was tweeting about, like, Lori Loughlin and, and Ooh, Felicity maybe, Huffman. Maybe he ought to stay and away like, from Dude, Trump's you are not office. the poster child for why we need meritocracy. I mean, or maybe you are the poster well, child yeah. for why we need, But, so, I, you know, I don't, my reaction to this is, this is going to distract us 
right, from what ought to be a national conversation about meritocracy, right, and from what ought to be a conversation about how people of means and of privilege, you know, find ways, lawful or otherwise, ethical or otherwise, moral or otherwise. I, I think it's dangerous. It, I know you, I don't think you mean this. It, it sounds almost like you're saying that people who have means are likely to be less ethical than other people. No, 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 no. no. I'm context. saying something different. I'm saying I'm saying that it seems that, listen, I don't doubt that the allegations, if true, are stating clear violations of federal law, right? And, so, and, yeah, to put it mildly. Right. And I think that, like, these these parents are all going to be paying a lot of money to stay out of jail. I mean, I think yeah. that, that seems quite clear. Um my frustration is, like, to me, there's a deeper problem with access to elite educational opportunities in this country um, that is not simply about parents who are breaking the law, right? But that, you know, but that the system is sort of, you know, the system is tilted so heavily in favor of people who have the means to do, you know, the above board version of this as opposed to the below board version of this. And it feels like we're going to focus just on the below board side and miss the fact that, like, I have concerns about the above board side. So it depends on what you mean by this. Yeah. Because if we categorize ah, well it as said. if we categorize it the meaning of is uh, <laughs> if we categorize this as all this full spectrum of advantages one has from being in a relatively wealthy household, yeah. that encompasses a whole huge number of things that any parent in that category is I'm, going I'm, to reasonably I'm, I'm do. I'm literally just talking about access to to graduate to, to, to collegiate education. But are you narrowing it to uh, non-merits means of advancing yes. your kids? Yeah, okay. Well, then yes. that's fine. Right? So, so, there so is there is that conversation, and I think this episode will actually be good for you with your interest in that because I think this is going to spur the larger conversation. Is it? Precisely because, look, it's got everybody talking and... And it's not the case that somebody's going to say, ah, well, let's keep focus now on the bribery issue. That's the only <laughs> issue. This is this is pretty unique, I think. I mean, I don't – I, I, I mean, I don't there think may it's be, I'm sure there – you think it's widespread that admissions officers and coaches and other people so in first the position of all, almost, are taking bribes there, there all around only, the country? There are only a couple of admissions officers in the indictment, right? It's mostly right. coaches. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. Um, I think well, so listen. Right, if, which is if, a right place I mean, to if be. If we want to go down, if we want to go down that rabbit hole about the amount of money yeah, that yeah. is going, you know, that is exchanging hands with regards For to athletic college purposes. athletics. Yeah. I mean, you know, but but this is my point, which is like I see this story as a fascinating and you know. Um, Opt, you know, please, like optically pleasing, right? Like it's a, it's a fun. Yeah, you got headline. Famous people. I understand. Yeah. But so imagine if there weren't any famous people, right? Imagine if, imagine if you couldn't say Lori Laughlin and Felicity Huffman. Imagine if like the co-chair of Wilkie was the most famous person. Yeah. No, it'd be right? every bit as interesting to us, right? I think. But it wouldn't be the same headlines. It's like my problem is I don't give a crap at who the parents were, right? I want to talk about the sort of the culture of favoritism. I think this story gets you part of that yeah, conversation I, when it's not in the, let's put it this way. There's no reason to think your story that yeah. you want to be the story would be in the headlines or the subject of conversation anywhere this well, week. Well, that's certainly true. But this is making it now. Meanwhile, but We wouldn't be talking about it on this show. Right, one week removed from like, was it Tennessee that suspended their head basketball coach for like, you know, know about reports that, that he was taking money. Um, Wait, or, not or, Rick Barnes, not, not Tennessee. Rick Barnes? Is, is Top-ranked Tennessee Vols? Is, Tennessee, is Rick Barnes now the coach? 
Yeah, he's been the yeah, Wait, he left here and went to Tennessee. Te- no, oh, I'm sorry, LSU. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, okay. I got yeah. my I got Ooh. my SEC schools backwards. Yeah, I like um, Rick Barnes. No, no, LSU suspended their coach, right? Um I, I hadn't heard that. It, yeah. And sat their star player out of concerns that the coach had been involved in various yeah. financial shenanigans to help recruit said player to the university. Like I th- I think that you should take comfort from this story being out there in that this will provide more attention than otherwise would have been there for the larger question yeah. of of access to elite education. I will say just on that theme, one of the many problems with more education is good. More lead education, <laughs> more access to it is good. Um, part Knowl- pro- knowledge is good. Part of the problem is we're not spawning. We have a rapidly growing population, and we're not spawning more tier one research universities fast enough to keep up, right? Yep. So what we're doing instead is growing the institutions to some extent. We're fighting like cats and dogs over access to the limited number of spots of these places. Some can grow. Some can't, though. Like here at UT, the physical plant right. only takes so much. I mean, Amherst. Amherst, is a, Amherst is a, has a total student body of 1,750 students. Right. Like that's not a, There's not a lot of wiggle room there. Right. So the policy implication of what I'm, what I'm talking about here is we need more investment yeah. in what can become the next generation of fresher arrivals in the Tier 1 category. I am so with you on that, and I so wish that that were the second day story. And I just and so so you know Karen I think is com- for understandable reasons completely fixated on the preposterousness of what of what actually happened, and I'm like melancholy about how you know like I, I am both not surprised that this happened and you know see it as emblematic of a much deeper and harder to solve disease. Well, the the jury's ready to render its verdict, judgment for Karen. <laughs> but and yet I think you'll end up happier than than you think you're going to be about the effect of this story in the national dialogue. I also I mean the, the other thing is also I mean like I you know I I I don't for a second condone what the parents did, but I at least understand the instinct to do whatever is within your power for your kids. So so that part I actually don't agree. I think Ooh. what they did here was borderline abusive. So I don't know the details on this because yeah. I didn't study it all that closely, but I gather in many cases at least the kids had no idea. The kids have been, the, the kids were told. Like, yeah, some the, of the kids were told. At least some of the, some of the story is that these kids did not know there was a second SAT for them right. that somebody took. Um, I think this is horrible. Is parents in some cases lying to their kids about these these massive yeah. crimes they're yeah. committing, um, and just and to the extent the kids knew, that's even worse. What's well, the thing? But so so it's listen, even worse. I'm not saying. Listen, I'm not saying it's good parenting. I'm saying all of these horrible actions, yeah. at least from the parent side, comes to me from a sort of an impulse that, if badly executed sure. and badly applied, I at least understand. I look. I I certainly understand every parent's love for their kids and want to advance them, but I also think it bespeaks something really wrong about how a lot of the most competitive slices of our society look at higher ed, I where agree. the thing that success is whatever that particular slice defines as, right. you got to get into that school. So let's start with the hyper-competitive pre-K and yes. then the hyper-competitive, know. you know, I think all that way lies you know, madness. I, I had, one of my friends was telling me a story about how they had to interview for pre-K. Uh, no, they had to interview, they had to interview for um, daycares in New York. And I was like, what you're gonna have a, an interview with an 18 month old? Like you know, how do you do 18 month old? Hi, what do you I, like to do? Hi. Like, <laughs> anyway, so listen, there there are deeper problems here. I'm just like I, this to me strikes. I mean, I don't know. I, I there's so much that is so wrong with the world right now that like I just feel like we ought to have those conversations. And I feel like this is just like shiny. It, this is Trumpian. It's shiny, glossy object that everyone can agree. Like we can all tisk at for a couple of days, and then we'll move on to the next headline. I, I am more optimistic. Yeah. Well, this, imagine <laughs> imagine that. <laughs> all right. Uh, on that something note, I guess. Yeah. Um, hey, are you going away next week? 
It's our spring break. Um, I'm going to be traveling around about in Texas some with the family, seeing relatives here and there, and having a great time doing all the cool things you can do in San Antonio and Houston and mm-hmm. elsewhere, but no big fancy trips. Are you guys going to uh, uh, We're going Coast? to L.A. on Friday. Oh, West Coast. Um, we're going to L.A. Maddie is getting her first. If, if Maddie is not, you know, still <laughs> a sick ward by then, um, on Sunday, Maddie is getting to, to explore Disneyland. Oh, awesome. So oh. I, I think her head will literally explode. That's fine. I, I have uh, relatives there as we speak, and I've been looking at the pictures while we're talking. Uh-huh. It's looking pretty but good. But we're back Tuesday. So are we going to record next week? Um, let's wait and see if the news cycle warrants uh-huh. it. Well, I mean, these days. You never know. All right. So, uh, listeners, there's a chance that we will not have a regular episode next week because it is our spring break. Um, so, worst case scenario, we will be back at you in a Oh, wait. Weeks. I can't believe I forgot to say this. Guess, okay, did I tell you I surprised Heather? So, we had no. it was just our 19th anniversary on Happy Monday anniversary. I uh, went to a good new place here in Austin, Carpenter Hall. Mm-hmm. Pretty, pretty cool spot. Um, it's the old Carpenter's Union building, it's been repurposed. So, uh, she thought I was giving her for our anniversary a Sonos speaker, which is what she'd asked for. But did I give her that? No. <laughs> um, instead, I surprised her. We are going to go next Wednesday. Heather and I are going to leave the kids with uh, with her parents, and we are going to go to Vegas for one night to go see Hall and Oates at a residency concert at Caesar's Palace. You're looking at me like you just kind of can't believe that I made that choice and should have gone with the Sonos speaker. No, 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 no. <laughs> to the contrary. I mean, Karen, Karen and I have been thinking about what to do for my 40th birthday, which is rapidly approaching. My, my best efforts to the contrary notwithstanding. Oh, my God. Um, and I think we settled on a weekend in Vegas. Okay. Well, suffice to say that, that there's probably going to be very little gambling yeah. and a whole lot of 80s music and some really good meals. So, so Karen and I are both of the of – the, you know, Karen and I have the have the exact same approach to Vegas. Neither of us gamble. None of us like to gamble. We don't go for the casinos, right? We go for the food and the entertainment um, and the short nonstop flight to there Austin. There you go. So, so that'll be us. Uh, Hall and Oates, get ready. Here we come. I got nothing for that. So <laughs> I, I, I'll be at Disneyland. I'll have a report. All right. Uh, he is at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. This is a long one. Yeah, let's end it. Bye. Adios. Oh, wait. Stay safe out there. Adios.